Jesus just said some very, very severe things about hell and the unquenchable fire. And do you know how we responded? The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. How could it be good news to talk about such a subject? Now, I realize that a couple things. One, it's probably going to seem like I planned my vacation to preach about hell and then take off really quickly. Um, so as not to have to field any uh, questions or complaints. Um, but, but it is an important subject, so much so that Jesus speaks of it more than anybody else does in the Bible. And so it's important uh, for us to talk about. Um, we, our notions of hell are uh, largely shaped by popular culture and medieval images of torture chambers and things like Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost and things like this. And we think about little red guys running around with horns and spiked tails and, and things like that. Um, so it's important to ask, like, what does scripture actually say about hell? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, don't worry about hell. It probably doesn't exist. It's not going to be that kind of sermon. I don't think that that's what Jesus believed. And I don't think that's what scripture uh, uh, teaches. Uh, although there are uh, Christian leaders out there supposing such things. Um, I want to say, the way that we think about hell is often based on, if you have ever gone to like a Baptist church camp, forgive me if you're Baptist, or something like that, and every summer you got saved because uh, the the preacher warned about the fires of hell and the way to do it was to say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus as Lord and and things like that. And I don't want to demean those kind of experiences because sometimes people become genuine followers of Jesus in in those experiences, and that's good regardless of the fear-based tactics used, right? But it has become a popular notion that uh, prayer Praying to Jesus uh, for salvation or inviting him into your heart is a fire insurance policy, right? Well, if I say the prayer, get baptized, I'm good. don't got to worry about anything because I'm going to go to this nice place called heaven when I die. I don't have to worry about the fires of hell, right? So it's it's seen that everything is based on this one momentous decision that I make. And, you know, I I don't know what happens after that. What It doesn't really matter because I made that decision. But um, I want to say that Jesus is... A picture of hell is much bigger than that. Actually, when Jesus talks about hell, he talks about it in the context of discipleship, right? Which means to follow him each and every day of your life, right? From start to end. Now, the question um, comes up first before we even get into the passage. Well, how could a good God send anybody to hell to this place of unquenchable fire and things like that? And I'm not going to say a lot about what is hell and what should we make of things like fire and things like that. Um, but I want to say um, God can send people to hell because not because he's wicked or mean, but because he's good. Because he, A, he respects human freedom to continually reject him perpetually throughout all of one's life. And B, because he cares about justice, because he's a just and righteous God, as the psalm just said, that we, that we, that we just, uh, recited together, that his judgments are righteous, right? Now think about this, um, if God's gonna restore all of creation to its pristine beauty and eliminate every evil and wicked and horrible thing, um, I don't want someone like Adolf Hitler getting to be a part of that picture, right? Okay, so God, ha- God will let people go to hell because he's good and because he's just and because he's not going to, he's, he's going to remake the world and he's not going to have it infected anymore by any kind of sin and wickedness and destruction because he cares about the people who have chosen to be a part of what he is doing. 
Okay. Now, to understand hell, you can't just pull out a text from Revelation or from the Gospels or something and then just think that it's all right there. We have to actually go back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible. Now, for those of you who are at the retreat this weekend, this is going to be fresh in your minds. Um, So we go back to the story of the Garden of Eden right at creation. And what does God do? He creates this beautiful, pristine world and he gives it to human beings. He, he gives them a kingdom, right? He says, guys, have at it. It's yours. Go enjoy it. Make babies and fill it and, and, and make gardens and, and cities and multiply throughout the face of the earth and have dominion over the fish and the birds and, and the animals, right? He gives them this wonderful kingdom. And guess what the best thing about it is? They walked in the cool of the garden with the Lord God. His presence was, was just right there with them. There was no brokenness in their relationship with them. And God says, by the way, there's one thing that you can't do. You can't eat from this tree um, that's going to make you the decider of what's good and what's evil. That's only for me. You're not to have that wisdom. And um, they said, uh, thanks for the nice kingdom in your presence, but no thanks. We're actually going to eat from the tree because we want that wisdom. And so what happened there was they said, no. To, to the kingdom they were given, to God's presence in his kingdom, and they chose to set up their own kingdom. Okay, They were exiled for doing so from God's presence. They were, they were cast out of the garden. They were exiled from God's presence. That's hell. Okay, It was chosen, and it, it was it's separation from the presence of a good and loving and holy God. That's how that's where you have to start in the story. So now the question is, what is God going to do about this situation? And the first thing that happens, Adam and Eve are cowering in fear and in shame because they recognize the gravity of what has just happened. And what does God say? Where are you? Where are you? And we see right from the beginning of the biblical story that the God of the Bible is in the business of pursuing people who are in rebellion against him. And, and, and at the retreat this weekend, we saw this thread through all of Scripture that a faithful God pursues unfaithful people all throughout the Bible, and he still does the same today. And so what he does is he calls this man Abraham to himself, and he says, I'm going to bless the whole world that's under the curse of sin and death now. I'm going to bless the whole world through you and through your descendants. And uh, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, they don't do such a knock-up job of that, do they? They don't do such a knock-up job of being a blessing to the world and showing them what God is like. They actually make a lot of Adam and Eve decisions. They say, no thanks, no thanks. Your good law that's going to help us flourish as human beings, no thanks. We like idolatry, right? We like quick fixes. We want to be like the people around us in other cultures around us, right? They continually reject God's extended arms of mercy, And it leads them to live lives of a living hell and of self-destruction. Then, so what does God do? He comes himself. He he sends his faithful son, an Israelite, right? He's going to stay true to that promise to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And Jesus, who comes from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah and Israel, comes and he actually lives the life that no one else could live. And he actually represents God's character and kingdom to the world. And so he goes around, this Jesus goes around and starts saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? He's saying, listen up. 
There's a way out of this kingdom of darkness that you have made for yourself. This kingdom of greed and selfishness and sexual immorality and pride and unforgiveness and back into the kingdom of God. The, the, the goodness and light of living in his, in his good presence. And he calls that the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God's not castles and swords and soldiers and knights. The kingdom of God is the reign of God in people's hearts and lives. So Jesus goes around proclaiming the kingdom. And what's the way back into that kingdom? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer works here. Jesus is the way back into that kingdom because he will actually die on behalf of us for all of the sins and all of the darkness and all of the wickedness of the world. He takes it in to himself and dies for us. And so the way back into life is through him and believing that what he did was completely sufficient for us to be called pure and holy sons and daughters of God, right? And so What happens, though, when you put your trust in Jesus is not that you just think, now when I die, I can go to a nice place. I've got fire insurance, right? Actually, it's more important that it is eternal life with God. But what it is is when you place your trust in Jesus, he enables us, he breathes his spirit into us, and we are able to take up the vocation that we were given in the garden, that Adam and Eve were given. What was that vocation? To fill the earth, to make something of it, and to represent God's character faithfully to the world. That's what the world should see when they look at the church. When they look at the church of Jesus Christ, they say it's so strange how they live in a different way. They actually love each other and take care of each other. They actually serve the community and don't expect anything in return. They make good art and culture and it's beautiful and what they're doing is is, is just different, right? So when we place our faith in Jesus and we are ushered back into the kingdom of God, we're given a vocation to live in a certain way. And the Bible actually describes this, Jesus describes this as becoming his disciples, right? You see how this is about discipleship. This is actually about following Jesus, reclaiming the kingdom of God in our lives and giving ourselves to it. And you know what? It, 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 becoming a disciple of Jesus and listening to his teachings and living his way flies in the face of everything our culture and our family and our friends are telling us about the good life. Because he says you have to forsake all. And you have to make God first and others first. And that is not the way that the world tells us to find flourishing as human beings, right? It's a counter-cultural way and it's costly. It's radically costly, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 9, um, since we have that as, as background. And look at what Jesus says. We're looking t- towards the latter part of the passage. He um, he's about to go mafia on his disciples. He says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, that's like one of his followers, whoever they be, um, who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and were thrown into a sea. These, what these were were these cement blocks that went around the neck, right? Okay, it was a pair of cement shoes, as they say in the mafia movies, right? They're going to pour cement in your boots and toss you in the ocean because you made the mobster mad, right? Jesus is going mafia on him. He says, but he's trying to give him a severe picture of the judgment that will be upon people who lead people astray from having their allegiance in Jesus, they're, they're giving their allegiance to Jesus. He takes it very, very seriously. Now, where he goes on, he says, um, he uses the word stumbling block. That's what's in our word. And then he goes around and he says to stumble. Um, that word in the Greek, skandalizo. What, what word do we get from skandalizo? 
scandalize, right? To scandalize somebody, right? To be scandalized is to, to fall away, to trip up, right? To get thrown off, right? Jesus says to John the Baptist, blessed are they who are not scandalized on account of me, who do not stumble away on account of me, who keep their allegiance fixed on me. That's stumbling, right? Now, that can happen. It can be an abrupt shift of allegiance from Jesus to something else, right? To the kingdom of this world. Or it can be slow and nearly unrecognizable. That's the one we have to worry about. The slow and unrecognizable shifting of our allegiance from Jesus to something or someone else, right? That's stumbling means, we could say this, stumbling means discipleship comes to an end. Our, our following Jesus comes to an end, right? Okay. Um, what causes stumbling? That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Jesus says, um, now, you know, he's not um, speaking literally here, right? He's speaking hyperbolically when he says, if there's something that's causing you to sin, your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your feet cut it off, right? He's saying these are he's, these body parts are things that people use to engage in sin, right? Like theft and, and adultery and, and murder and things like that. And he says, if it causes you to sin, Cut it off. You have to let it die. He's not speaking literally. If he was, we'd all be really stumpy, wouldn't we, right? We, we, um, he's not speaking literally. He's talking about the severity of sin and what it can do in a person's life, right? So here's the first thing that can cause stumbling. I'll call it the hardening of sin, Sin's hardening power. Now, you might say, well, as long as I keep asking forgiveness for my sin, I'm good, right? Well, there's a sense in which, yes, that's true, but that to have that mindset is to play with fire. That is to play with fire. Let me read you. There's a biblical concept of what God does to people who continue to persist in their sin and don't actually, actually repent and turn away from it and go another way. Um, in Romans chapter 1, uh, we were doing this in Sunday school this morning, but Paul is painting a picture of the pagan world, people who love the creation more than they love the creator, right? And he paints this picture of degradation and sexual immorality and all of these things. And here's, here's what he says. Listen to what he says. This is, he's describing people who are just persistent in their immorality. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Right? So here's the picture of what he's saying is what, what God does. He says, when you continue to harden yourself with sin, there's going to come a point when God says, I'm taking my hands off. I'm going to give you over to it. That is the worst punishment that God could give us, right? But it says, but he says, if you continue to persist in it, and you won't turn away from it, I'm going to take my hands off. That's a really scary thought, right? See, um, it's been said, first you conduct sin, and then sin conducts you, right? You feel like you're in control. I can slide on this one. It's no problem. And the next thing you know, it becomes an invasive species uh, in your life, right? So for disciples of Jesus, sin is anything... It's anything that clamors for our allegiance, right? It can be an addiction, it can be a lifestyle, it can be a career, it can be a relationship, it could be anything. It could be television, it could be food, it could be anything that clamors for our allegiance and starts to replace our love of Jesus, right? You see how this is about discipleship? It's about following, about following Jesus throughout all one's life. And this is why Jesus says, cut it off, kill it. 
Let it die. It's not worth it. It's not worth losing the kingdom of light and peace and eternal life with the God who loves you for this temporary order of the world that's passing away. It's, he says, don't be stupid is what he's saying. Don't shift your allegiance to something that is going to pass away when you can have eternal life in the presence of the God who loves you. The second thing um, that causes stumbling is alternative allegiances. And this is just kind of an elaboration on the first point. Um, it's where sin leads, right? It leads us to shift our allegiance to something else. Now, hear me. We've got to make a clear distinction here. Committing a sin does not take away your salvation. You, you did not um, earn your salvation by moral perfection. And so you're not going to lose it by moral imperfection. Okay, it's all by the grace of God. But here's the thing. This is where we have to be careful and and a little bit nuanced in our thinking is that sin, when we continue to persist in it and we get a laissez faire attitude about it before we know it, our allegiance with Jesus is on the back burner. He doesn't even matter anymore because the sin that we love so much has become attractive. It's actually become the Lord of our lives. Right. So it's a shift of allegiance Uh, in first John, chapter two, John, a beloved disciple of Jesus is an old man now and has been watching people uh, in churches for many, many years. And he's probably seen a good number of people fall away from their faith in Jesus Um, because of the world. He says this, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world for the love of the father is not in those who love the world for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and pride and riches is not from the Father, but is from the world. He says, for the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see the image that he's painting. He's not saying the world itself is bad, the creation is bad. He's saying the world under its power of sin and death is something that can allures us, it lures us in with what it has to offer. And he's saying, don't get stuck there. Because if you start to love the world in that way, and you get addicted to riches and pride and whatever else it is, then you have no room in your heart for the Lord. You have no more room because you filled it all up with the world, right? He says, that's passing away. Don't make that mistake. Uh, St. Augustine talked about this as... Uh, disordered loves he said when sin he says sin is disordered love it's when um, your love for other things actually um, usurps your love for god it actually takes the first place in your life right he says that way it has to be for christians is that god always has to have the pride of place with our loves he always has to has to have all of our loves right jesus says love the lord your god with all your heart all your mind all your soul and all your strength and augustine says we, we should love other things in relationship to that. It's good to love. There are good things to love in the world, right? But they have to come under the love of God. But when they start to take pride of place and God starts to move down the ladder, he said, that's sin. That's disordered love. You're actually moving back into a life of self-destruction in hell because you're putting God back out of the picture and putting something else as Lord in your life. John tells us that sin, remember I said sin, uh, our shift of allegiance can happen very abruptly where someone just says, you know what, something bad happened to me. I don't trust this God anymore. I don't believe in him. I'm done with it. Or it can happen slowly and subtly. And that's where we really have to pay attention, right? John tells us in uh, first John, he says, we, he says what sin does is it deceives us, right? He says when we're in sin, we deceive ourselves about it, right? We kind of pretend like it's not a destructive power. We tell ourselves everything's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. I'll just ask forgiveness. He says, watch out for that. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't, this is playing with fire, right? See, this is why Jesus uses such severe language. 
Because he loves his disciples. And he shudders at the thought of any of them taking their faith and their trust in him and placing it somewhere else. Starting to love something else more. Because he knows where that leads, right? That's that, that, that's hell on earth and it begins to lead unmitigated and if it's unrepented of and if people persist in it, that's going to lead them into a place of eternal separation from God because they persisted on it and, and, and insisted on going that way, right? Here's the third thing that causes stumbling and this is a big one for a lot of people. It's failing to trust in the goodness and loving kindness of God. That actually causes people to stumble. Here's a big one. It's too much suffering in the world. I, I, how could a good God let a tsunami wipe this out? Or how could a God let, let this happen to my family? And so therefore, I do not trust that this God is good. Right? That causes people to shift their allegiance from Jesus to something else. They say, I just don't trust in his goodness or his love anymore. Or here's one. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. You think, God could never forgive me for this thing that I did. He could never forgive me because I've done this 60 million times over and over and over and I just keep doing it. And he could never forgive me. He could never love me again. So what's the point? I'm going to, I'm just going to live however because he couldn't possibly forgive me. That's the biggest lie that you or I could believe, right? We just sang a song. There's a wideness in God's mercy. Right? He is there with open arms and tells us to approach his throne with confidence, his throne of grace, because we can do that because Jesus has died for those sins already, all 60 million, 70 million of them. Right? It would be a huge mistake to fail to trust in the goodness and love of God. That is a work of the devil to try to lure people away from God to say, he's not merciful, right? So on the one hand, he says, don't worry about your sin. He's going to forgive you. It's his job. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it too much. And then on the other hand, he says, he'll never forgive you for that. You dirty, rotten scoundrel. He'll never forgive you, right? Those are both the voices of the devil, right? God's mercy never, ever fails those who turn to him, right? Or people fail to trust in the goodness and loving kindness of God because their image of God is distorted. They see him as a celestial killjoy, right? He's peering over the wall just waiting for somebody to step out of line and strike him with a bolt, right? He's a killjoy. who does. He, he's just waiting for somebody to have a little bit of fun and he's going to catch him having fun, right? That's a distorted image of the God who gives joy, to his people to delight in his creation, right? Distorted images of God lead people away from God. What is hell? Okay. So what is hell? <clears throat> Jesus refers to it as outer darkness um, where fire is not quenched. Um, where does that imagery come from? Bible scholars kind of universally agree that this language of flames and things like that is metaphorical, that Jesus is doing. The Bible doesn't really tell us literally what's going to happen to the body. It tells us everybody's going to be resurrected, the good and the evil. It doesn't really tell us what's going to happen bodily to people. But the imagery itself comes from, when Jesus says the word hell, it's a Greek word is Gehenna, and it comes from a, 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 a place a geographical location called the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, Hinnom, in Jerusalem, and it was a burning garbage dump, okay? This was a place where all things foul and garbage just continually burned in a fire that just was never went out, right? It was just because garbage was always being dumped onto it and put on top. It was a gross place. People who didn't have money to get tombs for the loved ones who died, threw them on the pile, Um that it's just what it was. It was the Valley of Hinnom. So that's where the word in the New Testament hell comes from. But it took on that place because it was a place of 
yuckiness, I think that's a word, um, it took on the connotation, it took on images of severe judgment and punishment, right? It was, a, it was an undesirable, undesirable place. But what it does is it describes what Jesus is doing is describing the tragic reality of separation from God's presence, right? Like that's something that you choose in this life to persist in, right? Is se- separation from God's presence is to hold on to things that you know are keeping you separated from God and to, to refuse to let go of them, right? And hell is God taking his hands off and just letting that come to fruition for all of eternity. And there will come a point when there will no longer be an opportunity to turn back to God. Why is that? Because God is unmerciful? No, because our hearts have become so hardened that we don't even want that anymore. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says um, about hell. A lot of you know this quote. It's very famous. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He says, all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. See, it's a choice, right? God just doesn't have a bad day where he thinks, I'm grumpy, i got to pick a few people to send to hell today. It's something that people choose as they reject God in his costly love and mercy that has been extended to them, right? One author says this. This is a great way of summing it up. He says, what is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way, be our own master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. See, remember that reading from Numbers, and there's this weird story about Moses, 70 people prophesying, but at the beginning of the passage, uh, Moses is saying these people are too much to bear, and why is that? They're, they're complaining, right? They're the wandering complainers, as we talked about yesterday at the retreat. They say, we just want to go back to Israel where we had good cucumbers and falafel sandwiches and onions and watermelon. We want to go back there. What were they going through in Israel? They were slaves, right? We want to go back to the hell that we lived in because there's at least some immediate gratification there. You see, that's an image of a self-chosen hell, right? When all that time God was providing for them, he was saying, walk in my ways and you will flourish. You will be blessed in the land. I will give you everything you need and you will enjoy the blessing of my presence. And they said, no, we want slavery because there's uh, some good cucumbers, right? That's a picture of choosing the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God, right? Now, here's where I want to close. Um, the reality of hell, sometimes for a while I just avoid talking about it and we do avoid talking about it and we shouldn't dwell on it too much because we think kind of can make us worry and think about that God is not a God of love. But actually, uh, I have come to the conclusion that actually meditating and reflecting on what the Bible says about hell actually emphasizes God's love. Well, how does it do that? What did Jesus experience on the cross right before he took his last breath? Remember what he says? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right? What's happening there? All of the sin and all of the darkness from eternity past to eternity forward, he's absorbing it into his own body, into his own flesh, and the Father turns away from him. And and, and in that moment, in a sense, says, away from me, right? 
He's, he's vanished into the depths of hell in that moment as he takes sin and death into himself. For us, he experienced the darkness and the separation from the heavenly father so that we don't have to. That's love. That is costly love. And I'll say what I always say. No one has ever loved you like that. Right? You see, hell illuminates the love of Jesus for his people. The wideness of God's mercy for people to turn to him and find the true and abundant life of becoming and becoming his disciples and having the promise of being a part of his restoration of the world that will be cleansed from sin and death and pain and suffering where God will dwell with his people and wipe away the tears from our eyes once and for all, for all of eternity. Let me close with this. It's from 1 John chapter 4. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Amen.